You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. When the Apostle Paul first rolled into this town, city, like a city, called Philippi, the city was famous for its connection to two of the greatest emperors that the world had ever seen at that point. Paul first came to Philippi in the winter, it connects with us, it was the winter of the year 4950. There was a population there of about 10,000 in Philippi, which that's sizable in the first century, not as big as other cities like Thessalonica and Ephesus and Corinth, but it's sizable. And when he wrote this letter to the Philippians 10 years later, I don't think it was lost on Paul how significant it was to be writing to saints in Philippi. This is not a small thing. I bet Paul enjoyed getting those words down on the page. There are Christians alive and well in no obscure city in Philippi in the first century. The planting and the growth and the endurance of the church in this city represented gospel advance deep into the Roman Empire. Now, Philippi had been founded about 350 years before Jesus. It's about eight miles northwest of a port city on the Aegean Sea called Neapolis. It's in the region called Macedonia. The city was named for Philip of Macedon. If you've heard of him, if you know of his name, he's famous because of his son, named Alexander the Great. So Philippi is named for Alexander's father. And Alexander conquered Greece in 338 BC, and he spread the language of the Greeks all over the known world, which is significant for this letter. So this city, Philippi, named for Alexander's father, received a letter from Paul about four centuries later, and it's written in the Greek language in part because of Alexander the Great. But long past were the days of Alexander. The Romans took over Philippi in 168 BC. And the city's real claim to fame in the first century was that 42 years before Christ, 42 BC, at the Battle of Philippi, the armies of Brutus and Cassius who had conspired to assassinate Julius Caesar were met by the coalition of Mark Antony and Octavius. Octavius became known as Augustus. After that, Augustus made Philippi a Roman colony. And in particular, it was located in a very strategic place. It was along this road that was known as the Queen of the Long Roads of the Roman Empire. So way more important than its history is the fact that it's strategic in terms of travel. And so enter Christianity in the first century. Today, the reason that the world knows the name Philippi is not because of Alexander the Great. And it's not because of Augustus and Mark Antony in 42 BC. The reason that the world knows the name Philippi is because of Jesus, because the Apostle Paul came there in the winter of 49, 50 
A.D. and because he wrote this letter that we have in our New Testament, this letter to the Philippians. Let me just say about this letter to Philippians, I love Philippians. I have a history, a personal history with Philippians. In a very formative season of life, Philippians was huge. That may be the same for many of you. I suspect many in this room would say with me, we love Philippians. And maybe you say that for a handful of reasons. And one thing I'd like to do in the sermon is celebrate some of those reasons, why we love Philippians. And with those reasons, share a few of the reasons that the pastors think this is a a really good book for the life of our church in the first half of 2024, why we've chosen to, gone he- chosen to go here is because we see some needs to be met in the life of our church. So let's take a two-fold approach this morning to introduce this Philippian series. This is gonna take us up to Memorial Day, God willing. We're gonna take it nice and slow. We're not flying through Philippians as we've had to do in the past with other studies. So first, this morning, I'd like to answer three questions from verses one and two, and then I'd like to finish by celebrating four reasons that we love Philippians. So let me give you my three questions from verses one to two. I'll repeat these again. You don't gotta capture them now. Let me give you my three questions, and then let's pray in particular for this study, for Philippians, dedicate this series for the first half of 2024. So here's the three questions from verses one and two. What do we know about the recipients of the letter? Second, why is this letter from Paul and Timothy? Why not just Paul? What's this and Timothy business? And then third, what do they hope that this letter will accomplish? Let's pray together. So Father in heaven, we come before you now as a church and we dedicate not only these few moments in the first couple verses of Philippians, but we dedicate to you the next five months, if you're willing to lead us and sustain us in this book of Philippians up to Memorial Day. Father, we dedicate this study to the good of this church, to the glory of your son, to meet the needs that we have here in the winter of 2024. Would you give us your grace? Would you give us your peace? Would you do it through your word? And would you help us as we saturate ourselves, as we steep together in this book of Philippians in the coming months. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First, what do we know about the recipients of this letter? Verse one says that the letter is to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, as for Philippi, as for the background in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16 tells the story of Paul first coming to Philippi, and there were some really unusual circumstances in Paul being directed by the Holy Spirit in some unusual ways to go across the Aegean Sea and bring the gospel into Europe, Paul coming to Europe for the first time. There's the conversion of Lydia at the place of prayer outside the city. There's the amazing conversion of the Philippian jailer. But that was 10 years before this letter is written. we're, We're nine years old as a church. Next week, we'll celebrate nine years. And the pressing issues 
of January, 2012, January 2015 and January 2024, like, they're different. There are some things that are gloriously the same, but in terms of pressing issues and needs for a nine-year-old church versus a baby church just planted, it's different. So if you want to learn more about Acts 16, which I would commend, we preached through Acts 16 in 2015. The sermon's on the website called Jesus in the City, and it's about how the gospel came to Philippi. However, I don't know that Acts 16 is hugely relevant for the book of Philippians written 10 years later. What is significant here is that Paul writes to all the saints. That is, he writes it to the whole church. He could have written mainly or only to the leaders, but he writes it to the whole church, to all the saints who are in Philippi. And that's how he usually does with his letters. Pastoral epistles are different. Letters Philemon's different. This is Paul's typical pattern, to the whole church, to all the saints in the city. You might say this letter's congregational. It's not Presbyterian. He's not writing just to the leaders, though he's going to hat tip the leaders. And even though the whole letter is to the whole church, he mentions two offices in verse 1 here. And note, both terms are plural. It's not like there was a, a single senior pastor who ran the show in Philippi. But from the beginning, there's overseers, plural. There's plurality in the leadership for the pastors, the overseers, and the deacons with the overseers and the deacons, he says. These two offices are the same two offices that are specified by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we find qualifications for both offices, and where the key distinctive between the two offices is that the elder overseers are said to be able to teach. That's the main difference in the requirements, which gets at the nature of the work that the overseers, the pastors, the elders, that's the same term for the, the one lead office or teaching office in the first century church, while the deacons are the assisting office with whatever needs there may be additionally. So there's question number one about the recipients. Question two, why is this letter from Paul and Timothy? Why not just Paul? The first part of verse 1 says the letter is from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul's the apostle. Paul's the one who met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Timothy, he's just a younger associate that Paul picked up in Derby not long before he came to Philippi for the first time. So why would Paul, the apostle, I mean, he's the really important one, right? Why would Paul, the apostle, have the letter come from both him and Timothy, the junior partner? Well, there's many reasons. One, just consider Paul's magnanimous spirit. Rather than highlight his special authority, now sometimes that's needed. In Galatians, that's needed. Philippi, it's a different situation. He doesn't need to highlight his apostolicity to begin Philippians. And he doesn't want to exclude his collaborator here, Timothy. Paul is secure enough and he's generous enough to include Timothy with him. 
Now, Timothy, along with Silas and Luke, were with Paul when he came to Philippi for the first time. So the Philippians know Timothy. It's probably part of it. And as we'll see in chapter 2, Paul means to send Timothy there soon to check up on them. That's also a reason to mention Timothy. Timothy also likely serves as Paul's assistant in composing the letter. It might be really easy for us to think about letters as if you just, you know, dash off an email in a few minutes. Or even if you're writing on paper, you know, sit down in the span of 15 or 20 minutes, write a letter. That's not how it worked in the first century. We don't have anything in the New Testament that was just dashed off. (laughs) When you wrote a letter in the first century, it was like publishing a book. It was a long and involved and expensive process. So Paul, together with Timothy, would have drafted this letter. He just didn't do this on his own. He would draft it, then reread it and make some edits. Then he rereads it again and then carefully writes out the final copy. Maybe that's the work that Timothy's doing, writing out that final copy. Maybe then they make a copy of the final copy so they have something to see what they sent. And so Timothy, very likely, is involved significantly in the process of the letter, like an editor or a publisher would be involved with an author when they write a book. But again, Paul is the apostle. And generous as he is to include Timothy in the process and mentions Timothy's name and set Timothy up for this coming visit to Philippi, at the end of the day, this letter comes under Paul's apostolic authority. He signs off on everything here. There's no excuse like, oh, uh, uh, Timothy put that part in, but that's not really me. Now, Paul signs off on it all, and it represents him. It represents the risen Christ from the beginning to the end. And we'll see next week, as early as verse 3, Paul speaks in the first person. Just so throughout the letter, he talks about Timothy in the third person in chapter 2. And so, when, when Paul lists Timothy here with him at the beginning, to call, them, to call them apostles doesn't work. Timothy's not an apostle. Paul's the apostle. But what does work is servants of Christ Jesus. It's an amazing thing that the one who is apostle and the apostle to the Gentiles also thinks of himself as servant. And this word servant here is the same word for slaves in first century Greek. Douloi, that's the word for slaves. And where the word comes from in particular is that it pairs with Lord, with the Greek word is kurios. Jesus is kurios. Jesus is the Lord. And so if he is your Lord, if you love him, if you serve him, if you obey him, what does that make you? Douloi, servants, slaves. Because Jesus is Lord, we, including Paul, are servants, slaves of the one who is the Lord. And Jesus is said to be Lord at the end of verse 2. Grace and peace, Paul says, will come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which this is a stunning pairing. The one who was clearly human, just two decades before, he's walking the roads of Galilee, 
in the streets of Jerusalem. And he's teaching with wisdom and authority. He's performing signs and wonders. He's suffering, dying, rising again. This man, this human, as we have celebrated here during Advent, this man is exalted alongside God the Father as the divine source of grace and peace that Paul hopes to extend to the Philippians in this letter. Which leads to our third and final question. Third, what do Paul and Timothy want this letter to accomplish? Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we'll see in the coming months, Paul has some specific manifestations of grace and peace in mind when he thinks about the present needs in Philippi. We might summarize it like this, a little summary of what they're getting at in the letter. Fresh joy in Christ. This is what he, what he wants for the, for the Philippians. Fresh joy in Christ leading to humility that leads to unity. There's some internal conflicts, as we'll see. There's a need for fresh unity, which leads then to joyful, effective witness in this Roman colony. Kind of works out from Jesus fresh in the heart to humility, to unity, to witness in Philippi. And this grace and peace, Paul means to come to the Philippians through the letter, through his words. It's an amazing reality. Do you think about this? Do you think about grace and peace coming through words? So Paul just doesn't begin the letter with grace and peace, and hoping there's, you know, may God give grace and peace in some other ways. I'm praying for it at the beginning of the letter. Rather, the letter itself is designed by Paul to be grace, to be peace to the, to the Philippians. Now, along the way, we're going to meet this guy, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is from the Philippian church, and he brought supplies, financial support, food. Paul's in prison in Rome. The Romans don't just provide supplies for the imprisoned. If you're in prison, you got to have some friends come and give you some food, keep you alive, give you some supplies and some support. So the Philippians partnered with Paul. They send support. They send it by this guy Epaphroditus. And now Epaphroditus is going to be going back to the Philippians. And so the letter is an occasion to send it back with Epaphroditus. And this is not the first time that the Philippians have supported Paul in some manifest practical ways. They're not just praying back at home, important as that is. They're also sending food, supplies, finances to help Paul on his missionary work. And Paul says from the beginning, the saints in Philippi had supported him. It says this in chapter 1. Says it again in chapter 4. The Philippians are clearly some of his best partners. He clearly is so affectionate for them. Pastor Jonathan this week texted the word gushing about the Philippians. Paul's just gushing for the Philippians with joy, with affection. That's right. He's gushing over them. He deeply loves this church. They make him happy. He calls them his joy and his crown in chapter 4, verse 1. If only all the churches could be like the Philippians, Paul would probably say. 
This most recent gift that they brought to him in prison in Rome through Epaphroditus, apparently somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus got sick and he almost died. But now he's recovered. Now he can go back. And so that becomes an opportunity for Paul to write a letter to the Philippians. He's got this guy with him who's about to travel back on these great Roman roads to Philippi. And here's an opportunity to send a letter, to send some grace and peace to Philippi. And so Paul thanks them for the gift they sent. He updates them on his status in Rome. He commends Epaphroditus for his service. Greet him, welcome him, thank him, praise him. He prepares the way for Timothy to come as well soon. And he addresses this internal tension that has begun to emerge in Philippi. So from the beginning, as we know from Acts 16, there's, there's been external, t- uh, external tension for the church in Philippi. Paul and Silas in that first trip to Philippi, Philippi were beaten with rods and imprisoned. That's, that's how the church began in Philippi. And now the church is about 10 years old, like us. And now conflict is threatening from within. Maybe for the first time, maybe not. But that's the threat Paul sees, internal conflict. We'll see that in chapter 4, there's two prominent women in the church who are at odds with each other, and likely others as well, lining up along with them or behind them. And so Paul hopes that this letter, with its exhortations to pursue humility, and from humility to find unity, will be a means of God bringing about fresh and greater peace in the church in Philippi. And that Paul's words, Paul's teaching, Paul's letter will be the means of grace. That'll be the instrument of his grace to the Philippians. This church with so much to celebrate and a few things to work on. So Paul loved the Philippians and it's a contagious love. I think this is one of the reasons that so many of us love Philippians is we get Paul's contagious love as we read this letter. How can you not love Philippians when Paul so clearly loves them? We have so much grace to celebrate. So let's close then with four very brief reasons why we love Philippians. Other than Paul's contagious love, four other reasons why we love Philippians. And I'll try to mention here along the way why it relates to us right now as a church and why the pastors are especially excited for this focus in the coming months. First, this is an epistle of joy. As we'll see, this letter overflows with joy, with brightness, with, with warmth. In, in contrast to say Galatians, this is a very different mood and tone than Galatians. In Philippians, we have more explicit mentions of joy and of gladness and of rejoicing, so far as I'm aware, of anywhere else in the Bible in such a limited amount of space. From the beginning, the letter is warm, is bright, even with the trouble that comes to the surface. There's trouble in chapter 1, there's trouble implied in 2, there's trouble clearly in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. There's trouble everywhere, but there's still this warmth, this brightness, this depth of joy. And 
Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's in prison in Rome as he writes with such joy. In his first trip to Philippi, Paul was singing at midnight in prison after he had been beaten with rods that day. And now, 10 years later, he is still singing in prison, in Rome, singing in the letter he writes to the Philippians with such joy. So right here from the outset, let's say very clearly, don't mistake the joy of Philippians with thin pleasures and comforts. This is not shallow joy. The joy of the gospel, Christian joy is not shallow joy. It is deep enough to survive and to thrive in prison, in conflict, in disease, in sickness, in struggle, in pain, in death, as Paul will say in chapter 1. Which really should put our lives and our problems, most of them so small, sometimes very big, put our complaints, put our pains into perspective. The pastor's prayer for this study of Philippians in the first part of the year here is that we would steep our souls in this letter in the next five months and that Jesus would be pleased to make us more like the Apostle Paul. I I, I want to be like this. I want to be like Paul. We want you. We want, as a church, we want to be like Paul. Beaten with rods, he sings. Imprisoned in Rome, he rejoices. Overflowing with joy. Why? Not just because Paul has a buoyant personality, but because Jesus is Lord. The gospel is true. The Spirit is alive and generously poured out on those who love Jesus. God is sovereign. Christ is on the throne, and He gives grace and peace no matter what the worst is. What are the worst circumstances in your life right now? And it's January, coldest month. Winter is here. And we're entering the thick of seasonal effective time, which is real, especially in Minnesota. And one of the reasons the pastor shows Philippians, which is bright, warm, and overflows with joy, is to help us through the winter of 2024. We love Philippians because it's an epistle of joy. Second then. We love Philippians because it's relatively brief. In contrast to, say, Hebrews. Philippians is brief enough for a short but focused and yet at the same time deep study. So it's just 104 verses, which I promise you this. Philippians is short enough for anyone in this room to memorize if you give it enough time and work at it. You can do it. In fact, Pastor Jonathan and I plan to memorize Philippians this year. Some others are joining us. You want to join us? 
So 104 verses, get this, 104 verses, 52 weeks in a year, that's just two verses a week. This really can be done. This is so doable. You can do this if you stick with it. And what better way to prepare yourself and sustain your soul in the sheer madness that 2024 will be as an election year than by memorizing and meditating on the book of Philippians. You might already know the first two verses. Let's see if we can do it. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. There's week one right there. That's two verses. So we like its brevity. Third, we love Philippians because it's so accessible. It's relatively easy to understand in contrast to, say, Galatians. Galatians tricks people. It's six, you know, it's six chapters. Reformation, you know, justification by faith and Martin Luther. And we get into Galatians and, oh, this is supposed to be easy and simple. It's a really hard book. You know that because we were there just a little over a year ago. And then you know what else is hard? Leviticus is hard. You know what else is really hard? Hebrews is really hard. That's our last three. What were we doing? We didn't think about it at the time. After a while, it's just like, whoa, that's like three of the hardest in a row. You guys have done awesome. You're still here. Thank you. Our hope as pastors in this season, in the life of our church, when we've been through so much, and God's grace has sustained us through the Rooted campaign coming to an end last April, and getting into the new space in September, and going through the pastoral transitions of last summer. Part of our hope in choosing Philippians for the first half of 2024 is that we hope this might be a time to refresh our souls. Go nice and slow. We're not rushing through Philippians. Drag these 104 verses out over the next five months. Lastly then, last reason we love Philippians, because of its memorable passages. From chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, 12 and 13, chapter 3, 12 to 14, chapter 4, Verse 19, I made a list of my 10 favorite passages in the book of Philippians. All right, that was the first four. I also included Philippians 3, 20 to 21, about our citizenship being in heaven. Going to need that in the next year. Chapter 4, verse 4 to 8, about not being anxious, but setting our minds on the true and the honorable and the just. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, on all things through Christ who strengthens me. But let me end with my top three, all right? So there were seven. Here's my top three. The first two we'll take together because they reveal the heart of Paul for Jesus. As Christians, in our best moments, we want to be like this. God, do this more in my heart. Do this more in our hearts together 
in the first half of 2024. So, as you know, chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he continues in chapter 3. Same theme, expressing the depths of his heart in love and worship and treasuring of Jesus. He says in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss in view of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In our best moments, when we're thinking our clearest, and when our hearts are at their purest, this too is what we want for Christ to be our life, to see death as gain, because to depart and be with Him is far better than to be distant from Him. And with Paul, to count as loss anything else of gain that we have in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And how do we know Him? The last memorable passage reveals the heart of Jesus. So two on the heart of Paul, now finally on the heart of Jesus. And that leads us to the table. This is chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. I love this Christ hymn. And as I read it, I want you to hear, hear your salvation. This is for you. He did this for you. Being in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, slave, being born in the likeness of sinful men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The death he died was not for his sin. He had none as we saw in Hebrews 2. The death he died was for ours. He went to the cross, as we saw in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him. He humbled himself knowing his father would exalt him. And he was obedient to death knowing that his father would raise him, that his father would reward him, honor him, and honor himself in and through him. and that he would have his people who believe in him. So this is a meal for the members of City's Church. But if you're with us this morning and you would say, I believe in this Jesus, I trust him. He's my Lord, he's my savior, I treasure him. I want to treasure him like the apostle Paul does. 
then we'd invite you to eat with us. The pastors will come and bring the bread. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.